Seeing Red the Pod, episode 62, where we always discuss the latest Nebraska issues. I'm Stephanie, and here with me today is Melody and our very special guest host, Julia Schleck. Welcome, ladies. How's it going? I love it when Julia comes in. Me too. It's my favorite. (laughs) I appreciate the invitations. It's nice to get to drop in here occasionally and just, you know, get to ask all my questions. Wonderful. And we have a super awesome guest on the the pod today i am i'm so excited about this interview senator terrell mckinney he's Mm -hmm. one of the newest senators and i think he has accomplished more in his 10 months of being a state senator than many senators accomplish on tough issues that um in if they even get eight years right like Mm -hmm. he is just really he showed up day one and he went to work, which yep. is just incredible. Mm-hmm. So I can't, I can't wait to hear, I can't hear, wait to hear about his priorities and how he's thinking about things and mm-hmm. all so that. I love I have, that he's like immediately taking on all these like kind of more socially taboo subjects, like mm-hmm. jumping right in there with prisons and, you know, like questioning you know, like a kind of sacred cow and, and talking about nonprofits. And it was, he's, he's really not afraid to kind of put it out there and say like, well, let's, let's ask some big questions. Yep. Yep. Um, why we brought him in today. So I do have one question, ladies. We got to ask, what'd you do this weekend? Um, I went camping. Ooh, camping. We went camping and it was, it was fine. It was a very normal family camping trip with all of the normal family camping moments that you might expect. But then at the very end, we were trying to leave. And my older son, who's nine, stepped on something sharp and blood was just like oozing out of his foot. And then my husband goes to get a bucket of water from the pump so he can wash it because the foot is also encrusted in mud. So I can't mm. even see what's going on. And then he epically falls, like like a banana peel, arms flailing, whole thing. He goes down. <laughs> and, <laughs> so, you know, I get the child's foot washed. We do all the things. And then I'm, okay, well, we got to go home. And, you know, we had we were already leaving the campsite anyway. Everything was packed up. And then the little son, who is four, says he does not want to ride with me, even though he's already car seated. Get him out of the car seat. Leave him with dad so that we can, he, there's a few things that need to be packed up still. Mm-hmm. Um, we drive away. Well, then he decides he changed his mind after we drove away and he just screamed. He screamed at my husband until they got home 30 minutes later. He was Aww. like, don't look at me. I don't want to ride with you. When you get me out of this car seat, turn around so you can't see me. <laughs> it was a whole. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it was- Poor little guy. It was a whole thing that I'm, everybody took a bath, then everybody just chilled out for the afternoon, took their naps, and you know, it was fine. But people were pretty pretty tired after that camping trip. So yeah. that, was, that was the big part of our weekend. 
we got to go to a, like an event in the public. Um, my little eight-year-old is in Girl Scouts and Girl Scouts had an event at the Rose Theater in Omaha to see a play and everybody was masked and everybody was social distanced. There aren't people. Um, we were at the front of the balcony and there, I don't I think it was like four rows back before there were other people. And it was amazing what you can actually do safely in public when people are following the rules. And my kid was like, so happy, just happy. Um, she also got a dyer hair purple. So that probably added to the, the happy. <laughs> but, sure um, and then my partner bleached his hair a couple of times and dyed it blue. So we were, I was just my plain old brown hair looking boring while they were having all the fun. But Julie, what'd you do? Well, I got to reconnect with uh, an old student of mine um, at her Harmio who uh, was a um, PhD student at the University of Nebraska. He got, got his degree last August in the middle of the pandemic and was lucky enough to get a, a job as a, a professor at SCC. And with the pandemic being so crazy, I hadn't spoken with him for like a year. And so I didn't know anything about how his job was going or um, the, the students there. I mean, it's a very different kind of teaching environment. Um, between UNL and SCC, and uh, I know he was really excited about it. He had, you know, come come through uh, a community college system on his kind of, you know, long road to finishing his PhD. But um, I was super proud of him, and it was really nice to to reconnect. He joins the very elite group of uh, Hispanic men and women who have doctorates in the United States, and as someone. Uh, whose uh, uh, family migrated from Mexico, you know, within a generation. It's a pretty extraordinary uh, journey for him to come from uh, that background and kind of make it all, all the way through to the, the end of, you know, the kinds of educational training that we could do. So, um, so it was really nice to reconnect with him. He's been doing a lot of cool artistic projects uh, in Spanish, actually, you know, even though he's a uh, trained in literature, he's been doing a bunch of creative writing, and uh, and and actually staged a play in the middle of the pandemic. So it was cool oh. to hear and uh, to to talk to him about the difficulties of doing that and getting it out. And um, the people back in his family's hometown in Mexico were watching it, and so it was it was really neat. Uh, opportunity to, to sit outside and um, have a drink and um, talk with someone who is very important to me that I hadn't seen in a while. Well, I bet that was so nice. I feel like there's there's just so many reconnections happening now that, you know, we're not out of the woods, but it's just, it's just safer to be reconnecting and we mm -hmm. all desperately needed it. Okay, are we ready for this? I'm so freaking excited. Let's do it. Bring, Bring him in. in. <laughs> Today we have Terrell McKinney. He's a father, a state senator representing District 11 in the Nebraska State Legislature, community organizer, activist, and wrestling coach within the North Omaha community. Before running for office, he worked as a community organizer focusing on food insecurity, Medicaid expansion, and various other community initiatives. Terrell holds a Bachelor of Science in Sports Business Management 
from Maryville University, St. Louis, Master's in Business Administration from Midland University. He's also currently attending Creighton University School of Law. Welcome, Senator. We're so excited to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. I would like to start by just learning a little bit about you. So there's a lot in your bio, like your parents, mm-hmm. you've gotten lots of degrees, you're still getting degrees, you've done a bunch of community organizing, but can we start maybe a little closer to the beginning? Like, are you from Omaha? If you are, kind of what schools did you go to? And just, can you tell us a little bit about your journey to the legislature? Um. So yes, I was Born and raised in Omaha. Um, I was born August 17, 1990. Um, Lived with my mom primarily most of my life. My dad was in and out. He was in prison and then out, but kind of around. But I lived with my mom, my older brother, and one of my younger sisters. Um, As far as schools I went to, I think I probably went to probably six or seven elementary schools in Omaha all over. Uh, Went to Monroe Middle School and uh, North High School. Kind of to kind of backtrack a little bit, I started wrestling when I was 10. And that's kind of what steered, I I think it's kind of the origins of where I'm at today. Because prior to wrestling, I was always getting in trouble in school and getting suspended for fighting and things like that. And wrestling became an avenue for me to channel my energy. Once I started wrestling, I wasn't as angry or getting into as many fights as I was prior to. Um, so I credit my, my wrestling coaches, late great uh, Joe Emerson and also Roger Parker for, you know, steering me in the right direction. So once I began wrestling, I eventually started to get decent at wrestling and became a city champ at Monroe and then went on to North High where I became a a state champion in wrestling my last two years of high school. Um, Then I went on to UNO for a few years to wrestle on the wrestling team. We were national champs three times. I was an All-American. And while I was at UNO, I was still trying to figure out life, honestly. I wasn't really focused on school and I was a little focused on wrestling. So luckily I became an All-American. Honestly, I was all over the place, still just trying to figure out life and ended up having my daughter while I was at UNO my, I think it was my sophomore year. Yeah, my sophomore year. And, you know, once I became a father, that kind of recalibrated my energy and my focus. And also during that time, they cut the wrestling program. So I was faced with the decision to stay at UNO or find another school. And I decided to leave Omaha and go with uh, coach Mike Denny down to Maryville University in St. Louis. And I was I was there uh, like two and a half years, three years or something like that. And I, I wrestled there, but I was battling injuries and weight and just it didn't work out as far as wrestling. I was still a team captain and things like that, but that's when I started to think about life after school and wrestling. And my my dream, honestly, was to work in professional sports and, and, and whatever, the NBA, NFL, or somewhere. I coached wrestling at the university at Maryville in a local high school. 
school in St. Louis, but I also had worked for the St. Louis Sports Commission. I helped operate the uh, Division I Wrestling National Championships and the Division II Championships as well. But during that time is also when the riots were happening in St. Louis around the death of Michael Brown. And that kind of was hitting home for me because I had a friend. He also had wrestled at Maryville that lived in Ferguson. So he was giving me the, I would say, the real news that wasn't being reported on, you know, CNN or Fox News or anywhere. So that kind of was hitting, hitting me a lot. But also while I was in St. Louis, Trayvon Martin had, was, was killed as well. And that I think that, that is where I kind of was like, okay, what's, what's going on here? But I think Mike, the, the Michael Brown situation is what really stuck with me. And because I eventually started working for a boys and girls club in Ferguson, Missouri, and just working with the kids and interacting with the community there in Ferguson, I was like, okay. And just hearing their stories and then talking to the kids and them asking me what happened to Mike Brown and what, you know, that kind of was like, wow, you know, nobody's is really educating the kids on the situation like, like we probably should. And I didn't feel like I was in a position to teach other people, kids about what happened necessarily. I, I just said some bad things happened. I really didn't go into details because, you know, those were young kids. And then I eventually moved back home. I think the, the fall of uh, 2015, once I got back home, I just was working. I think I was doing a security job, patrolling the Civic Auditorium, oddly. And and I just took the job because I needed a job. I really wasn't trying to be a security officer or guard, but I was like, I might as well forget it. I don't have to actually interact with people. I just have to sit in a car outside of a building, whatever. Um, did that for a little bit. Um, I tried to sell cars just all over the place. But then I think it was the summer of 2016 is when Auden Sterling and Philando Castile were killed by uh, police. And there was a protest in Omaha. And my aunt had called me one day because up until this time, I was always saying stuff on my, my, on my Facebook or something about injustices and things like that. And she was like, oh, there's, she had heard about a community meeting organizing a protest. I, and she was like, do you want to go with me? And you, me, obviously, I just jumped up and said, yeah, I'll go. So then from that time on, I just started to get more, more and more involved in the, in the community in North Omaha, volunteering, volunteering mostly. And then I, I went back to school, actually, in 2016. I think it was 2016 to get a master's in uh, business administration from Midland. But during that time, I started working with the organization Black Men United. I got involved with the Nebraska Democratic Black Caucus, and that's where, you know, all this had began. And then uh, I heard about a job opening at Nebraska Appleseed as a hunger action advocate. So I applied and ended up getting a job. And I did that up until I would say early 2018, I believe. Didn't you just get a good Apple Award from Nebraska Appleseed, Senator? Yeah, I did. The, I Congratulations. Think thank you. 
Yeah. Uh, so then I did that for a while, going around to different community groups in Omaha and Lincoln, trying to better understand food and security. We held focus groups. We did a food forum here in Lincoln. And then because of a grant, that job kind of was running out. So they had asked me to come on as an organizer for Medicaid expansion. I was pretty much doing the same thing. Medicaid expansion was just passed on the ballot. So I just was going around trying to educate constituents about that and trying to encourage them to call the governor and their state senators to try to push the timeline up. And then um, being at Appleseed, working around a bunch of lawyers, I got the itch to start studying for uh, law school in the LSAT. Uh, Everybody told me I was crazy, but uh, I tried it and, you know, Took it. A, I took the LSAT a couple of times and eventually got into Creighton School of Law, where right now I'm on break. Well, I'm taking a break because we just went into office this year. I wanted to go back in the fall, but special session and some other things kind of got in the way of that. But I still plan on finishing. But I decided to so to get on why I decided to run for office. It was an idea that was floated by some friends I know in the community. And I looked at them like they were crazy. It's like, that's not for me. Like, I'm not I'm not running for office. Uh, I'm, I'm cool with being in the, in, the, in the back and helping out and organizing and things like that. But it's not for me. But I also started to think about it a lot. And I guess the one thing that pushed me, not only knowing that Senator Chambers was term limited, I was like, there's no young voices in leadership in North Omaha. There's nobody in my age that is considered a community leader in politics. And I just felt like our voice was missing in a lot of conversations and at a lot of tables. So I said, why not? At least if I run, I'll open some people's eyes about what's going on from, from the perspective of a younger individual. So I decided to run and luckily, you know, I was elected. I lost the primary by seven or 800 votes, but I, in in my opinion, the, the primary was crowded and I was still building my name. And I was just telling myself, if I could get to the general, I could, I could beat anybody because you're just giving me time. And, and I knew if I had time, I could win if it's just me and another person. So once I got through the primary, I just grinded. I was I tried to be everywhere. I tried to make sure I was posting on social media every day. If there was a meeting and, and I could make it, or even if I couldn't make it, I was still I was still making it in some type of way. So still doing lit drops and walking around the district, just trying to do as much as possible to win and try to get my face in front of people and my name and ears of, you know, people of the voters. And in November, last November, I won. Um, and it was, it was a great feeling, but uh, still me being me, I was like, okay, I won, but now I got a lot of work to do. So then I got into the legislature in January and just tried to, hit the ground running in a, in a way and try to learn as much as I can in, in a short time just to try to be effective. Um, uh, I was able to get three bills passed this year. The first was LB 451 to end hair discrimination in the workplace. Uh, the other was 
LB479, and it was to amend the turn back tax committee uh, in areas of high poverty. And now in South Omaha, Senator Vargas, I believe, is on a turn back tax committee. And in North Omaha, I am. Uh, the other bill, what else was passed? Oh, LB452 to uh, require our schools to teach our students financial literacy as well. And there were some other bills that I co-sponsored that got passed as well. So now in the interim, I've just been working. I, I try to come to Lincoln three or four times a week. I visited multiple prisons throughout you know, the summer in the interim. We just wrapped up special session, which was insane. And I don't believe the legislature should be in charge of redistricting in my opinion. <laughs> but now we're here. I think that is interesting. That's something we have in common. One of the things you said about you really started to think about engaging in politics around the uh, Mike Brown murder and Ferguson um, protests and things that were happening around that time, because that was also an awakening point for me as well. Um, and that is right around the time we founded Nebraskans Against Gun Violence. And I just, you know, just seeing that violence and seeing one thing that really struck me about those moments was when you would look at the news coverage and it would show these local white guys with ARs walking around like fake police. Meanwhile, they're telling, you know, all the black teenagers they are going to be arrested if they're out on the streets unarmed. And it was just the really first big awakening about to me about how guns and society are interacting and how race plays a big role in that. So, uh, yeah, so that's just a interesting thing that we have in common. Uh, Stephanie, do you, would you like to ask a question? Actually, I would, if I could jump in. Um, oh, yeah. so I, I, I wanted to talk a little bit more about your your recent tours of the prison, um, which obviously are you know related to uh, gun violence and the policing too, right? The entire kind of justice system uh, works in a way that uh, funnels certain people into our carceral system, but then also there's you know some serious problems with the way that Nebraska is handling its incarceration. I mean, that's not unique in the United States, but tell us a little about, you know, what these, why you, why you decided to take this on, um, why you chose to do it by doing a lot of site visits. I often get the feeling that um, many politicians legislate prisons without ever having been inside one. Um, and so, you know, what, what have you learned through doing that? Why did you decide to do that? Tell us a little bit about the, what you've learned this summer. I decided to do it mainly to kill an argument. And the argument is coming from the Department of Corrections that us senators, we don't know what's going on inside. So even though I kind of knew a lot of the things that were going on, I just wanted to be able to be in a position for them to not use that argument. It's mm -hmm. so... I, I told myself over the summer, I was telling my staff, like over the summer, I'm going to admit, over the interim, I'm going to as many, you know, facilities as possible. I still have some on my list that I'm going to try to visit before the end of the year. But 
And that was the biggest thing, one, to kill that argument, but also to engage with those inside, because I don't think their voices get heard enough and we don't listen to them. It's, it's more so this is what you need to do with your life and how you need to fix your life. It's never us going to them saying, what can we do to help you be successful inside and once you're out? Because I know a lot of people like the gloss over the fact that majority majority of the individuals that are in our state prisons will be released one day. And if we're not doing anything to ensure that they're becoming better individuals inside, we're failing because they're, they're just going to get out and recidivize or not all of them will, but a, a good portion will. And then we'll still be having this revolving door of going to prison, getting out and going back and I just think we need to do all we can as a state to stop that. So that's kind of been my biggest mission is to better understand the, the populations in our state prisons and see what I could do and lend my ear to, to amplify their voices and what they need inside to be successful. Um, what I've learned, uh, staffing, as we all know, is probably the biggest issue inside because it's hot. It haunts everything. Whatever programming that needs to take place cannot take place consistently or is not taking place at all. It's also causing more individuals to be locked up longer in a sense of now, for instance, I believe at LCC, Friday, Saturday and Sunday, majority, majority of the time is spent in a cell. So that's about 70 hours that they're not even out of you know confinement, which is presents a bunch of other issues that you know could potentially spill out into our streets because locking somebody in a room for that many hours is is detrimental on the mental health to say the least, and you're also not helping them. Uh, what else? Um, so can I ask, is that now like regular policy at some or all of the institutions? So I've been a volunteer inside the Nebraska State Penitentiary for a number of years. And there were always kind of periods where just everything got locked down for like a week, two weeks, three weeks, you know, or a modified lockdown that halted programming. Um, but uh, it wasn't it wasn't standard operating procedure to have that like for three out of every seven days of the week. Is that something that's new or is it, um, is that a response to the kind of extreme staffing problems? You know, and they've had staffing problems for a long time. Um, but is it, is that getting worse now? Is that a pandemic response? Do you have a sense of that? Uh, I would say it's, it's a response to the staffing problem. But there's always there, the governor and Frakes would like you to believe that a huge reason why they have staffing issues is because of the pandemic. But they had already if you look at the, they were already trending in this direction with or without a pandemic. I think we would have this staffing crisis. So I, I get a little annoyed when they try to say, oh, we can't hire people because of the pandemic or to try to compare themselves to the fast food industry <laughs> or any other industry when they when they had this issue prior to 2020. 
Oh yeah, they they definitely did. <laughs> this is something that you know, as someone who provides a you know who, who regularly visited that that was an issue long long before the pandemic. Right, and so now I'm on. I know you guys probably seen that. I don't know if y'all know that I'm on the task force, the the Crime Justice Institute task force, looking at the prison system and the criminal justice system and looking at the data to try to figure out what is needed to do something about our staffing crisis, our prison overcrowding crisis, and just honestly, the criminal justice system overall in our state. Um, it's It's interesting. I'm trying to be optimistic honestly but that's that's where I'm at with it you know I've seen the data it is what I I would say the data is what we probably all already believe I don't think you need to commission a study to understand the issues in, in my opinion but I think for some it's helpful so they can actually see the reality and it's not me saying what's wrong it's an independent body saying this is what it is and so you can't use politics and say oh you just saying that because you are an advocate or you're a democrat or something it's it i don't even some of those individuals on the um, cji group might be republicans or independent so i think that's helpful i'm hopeful the data gets released before we go back into session because i think if the data isn't released for two reasons, I think the public just needs to see it. And two, I've, my biggest fear is we get to some type of recommendations, but the police and the county attorneys and all these other people still fill up the hallways of the legislature and say no to a bill. So I think we have to be, in my opinion, proactive and get them into the conversation now to let them see the data to understand why this bill was introduced. So can I ask, um, do you feel like, uh, you know, the, the bills that could come out of this can make a substantial impact on the problems that, you know, I, I, as you say, like we, we all know, like what I just, I, I'm, I'm wondering, I feel like it's such a huge issue, right? And that part of it is uh, the need for a holistic change in the way that we think about crime and justice in our society, right? And, and specifically the, the people that, that do things that, you know, we, we decide are criminal and the way that we think about how we handle those people. Like, I just feel like at the moment, the primary discourse treats prisons like the place where you stuff people that have done bad things. And then they're out of sight and out of mind and, you know, like problem solved, right? For the rest of us, uh, you know, aside from the families out there, right? For whom, you know, like those people continue to exist and their lives still, you know, are meaningful, but that for the general public, you know, it's like, well, someone commits a crime and they get put in prison and voila, you know, like we have solved that. Rather than thinking about prisons as part of our community, as, you know, places where people in our community live for a certain period of time and that are going to come out again. Um, and that, you know, we need to be kind of thinking thinking about those as part of part of our community and and treating them in a way that reflects that, right? That 
as you say, you know, people are going to come out, what happens to them on the side, what has been their experience inside prison? Does it, does it work to remediate crime? Does it, you know, like, basically, like, I feel like there needs in some respect to be a more holistic conversation too about the way that we we think about this because our prisons you know they're just growing and growing and growing and they're they're going to if we just keep you know like thinking of it as the place where we put people that are problematic in some way or another and manifest that i agree I, um i've told the group and i think i shared a quote from uh I think it was Albert Einstein that we can't solve our problems with the same thinking that we used to create our problems. I think I'm paraphrasing, but pretty much trying to encourage the group to to understand that we have to think outside the box to fix this. I think this this task force has the, the potential to do some transformative things. Will it happen is another story. But I think there, that it, it's possible. Whether it happens is yet to see. Um, the governor still wants to build another prison, which I oppose. And I, and I try to tell him that it makes no sense to build another prison. One, we cannot staff any of our, any of our f- facilities. You won't be able to staff this prison. When you look at the crime rates, and if it stays consistent, we would have to build another prison after we build this next one. So we need to look at what can we what can we do to cut the crime rate down and also keep people out and make sure that those inside don't return. Those are the things we should be thinking about. Uh, some things I try to float is workforce housing. Why do we have all these individuals inside? that aren't gaining a skill or a trade or something. So when they get out, they don't have to call around the city and hop on buses all day trying to find a job. Individuals should be released knowing, okay, I'm going to work here. I'm going to live here. I have transportation to get to work. Those basic things, I think as a state, we should take on if we're going to take on the responsibility of incarcerating them. Uh, so I, I don't know. We'll see. Um, I, I don't know. I, I would say I'm just trying to be a hopeful optimist in this process, but history has shown us what, you know, how people feel about people that they consider criminals and incarcerated. But I think now the dollars don't add up spending 200 plus million dollars year after year to incarcerate people and it's not stopping crime. It's, it, it's not doing what people who say they're tough on crime think it's doing. It's just, it, it's just not, you cannot, there, there are no numbers that could back that up and they know it. Is uh, workforce training one of the things that the uh, men that you've spoken to uh, who are currently incarcerated have highlighted as uh, something that would be really helpful? I know you, you know you you mentioned they, part of the, the goals of doing this was to hear what they need. So, is what is it that they're they're saying would be most useful? They've highlighted that they they've also highlighted the need for peer support to empower more peer support groups. It's not enough to get volunteers to come in. A lot of the 
individuals inside are doing a lot of the mentoring and they just want more support and more and more opportunities to mentor those that are coming in and help support them and guide them along the way. But because of staffing crisis, it's, it's very limited. So I, 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 I would, the cultural groups are big as well, of keeping individuals out of trouble, those type of things. And, you know, some, some sentencing stuff that, you know, that they believe would help as well. And community corrections, and it's a lot, but yeah. <laughs> so what kind of, um... What kind of work can we do in the uh, outside to help with providing those jobs, right? You know, like this is partially like an economic question. So what jobs are out there? How can we be building those? You know, like how can we be getting around the, um, the, the standard response that no one wants to hire someone with a record, right? You know, like how do we start working economically to connect people that have been through the justice system with kind of good jobs on the first side? I think we we have to rethink how we view people that have been in prison. I think there are a lot of jobs that require background checks and deny people for felonies that shouldn't be denying people. I think if it's not related to the so I, I can understand if I go apply for a bank job, but I robbed a bank before. Why? Why I would be denied? But if it has nothing to do with the nature of the industry, the job, that shouldn't automatically disqualify me. Just judge me on the merits of my character. Because it's some people that are in jail that made one mistake, literally just one mistake in life and ended up in prison. That doesn't mean you're a bad person, but you also can change and be you know, rehabilitated. Everybody in prison isn't a, a bad person. They just made bad mistakes. Maybe had a bad day one day. So I think we have to rethink about why do we, you know, ask for background checks? Because what's crazy, I was thinking about this the other day. The higher you go up, the less you get asked to give a drug test and a background check. But all the minimum wage jobs and things like that ask you for a background check and drug test. It's like you would think it would be the opposite, but it, it's not. And I, I think we're criminalizing people for being poor or penalizing people for being poor and going through situations. And I, I think that's, it, it's also, I think the issue around the prisons isn't just with policy. I think we have to change minds and how people view crime and individuals that end up in those situations and individuals that end up in, in prison. I think we have to really rethink how we look at those how we look at them because most people don't care until it's somebody that's in their family until it's your son it's like now you care about the conditions in the prisons and it shouldn't get to it shouldn't have to hit your doorstep for you to care yeah yeah so i wonder if you know one of the one of the things that can or should be done is finding ways to get the voices of men and women who have been incarcerated kind of out there so that they can talk about like, well, what happens, you know, to, to get them in there, what their time was like in there and uh, you know, what their struggles were in transitioning out again. Cause I, I feel like we just don't hear those voices, you know, and it's, it's hard to reach them when they're 
you know, currently serving a sentence, um, you know, it's, it's more difficult. I, I, and it, maybe I'm just imagining these difficulties, right? I'm just like, I'm trying to think like, how would it be possible to do an interview with somebody, you know, who's on the inside, just ask them about their life or, but certainly once they're out, then we should be hearing more of those stories and, you know, raising them up so that people can learn what it's like and, and have a kind of imaginative sympathy for that so that it doesn't take a family member um, but the people actually know what it's really like to be in prison rather than just like projecting what they know from television. Yeah. The, the tough part is a lot of those individuals are, are disenfranchised and want nothing to do with, you know, the system or they're kind of, I wouldn't say scared, but hesitant to speak out because if they're on parole or something, they don't want to be negatively penalized for saying something. So it, it's tough. You do. There are those out there that are willing to speak and don't care. But I think oh, the, the masses of individuals that have been affected by the criminal justice system either feel disenfranchised or kind of hesitant because of the relationship with the with politics and the criminal justice system. They're like, ah, I don't know if I should get involved. I don't, I don't want to deal with that or I don't want to go through that again. So that's, that, that's, that's what makes it tough. Yeah, that's understandable. And I guess then, you know, like part of the question is how we get people to feel enough like they still have a stake in the community and the way it runs rather than just being targets of it, you know, like targets of power, but that they that they could potentially also have some kind of interaction with uh, those who are making decisions about how the state is run um, that isn't punitive, right? That, that they could feel empowered enough um, and safe enough uh, to be able to uh, interact, share stories, you know, like provide their advice from their perspective to actual lawmakers, to business leaders, right, to, to those that are are making a lot of the decisions currently and that they'll get a fair hearing, you know, like in, from those people. And it that's a, as you say, that's a hard one to figure out because I think, you know, I'm sympathetic to their uh, general tendency to just, you know, keep your head down. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely it definitely is tough, but I think the one way the one approach that I try to take is to try to plant seeds, not throw everything at them or just anybody in general. Just plant a seed or two and just allow them to come as come on their own terms instead of saying come now. Just say, hey, this is something you should think about. Or, or say, I really think this would be good for you, but just leave it there and just let them kind of go, go on their own trajectory uh, without necessarily being overly forced. Yeah. Yep. So do you see any links between this, the, the work you've been doing in the prisons and some of the questions that you've raised about economic development in North Omaha? I loved reading those articles about, you know, you're questioning about the way that funding goes and, you know, can there be too many nonprofits and, you know, like the ways in which uh, economic development and jobs are made available um, in that space? Yeah, I think it all intersects each other. Uh, a lot of 
the individuals that I've seen in prison, I, I, I knew a bunch of individuals and the one common thing was they all grew up poor. And it and it's and it's not to say that money solves everything because there's people with money that may not be as happy as I am today. So I don't think money solves everything, but I think money alleviates a lot of issues. It allows you to breathe. It allows you to you know not make bad decisions as as frequent. People with money still make bad decisions, but. I, I just think if we were to decrease poverty, the it, uh, the issues that we see in our community wouldn't be so widespread. Yeah, there's a, a, a quote that I really love from this old 19th century novel that uh, talks about the majestic equality of the law that forbids rich and poor alike from sleeping under bridges and stealing bread. And of course, it's you know, something that the, the rich never need to do, but the poor often do, right? And so there's a way in which uh, it, money makes a big difference about your relationship to the law um, and the, the likelihood that you will transgress it in some way. Um, that, you know, people don't <laughs> steal bread literally usually um, anymore, but, you know, like, it proverbially, like, you know, in terms of a, a metaphor, that's still often what people are trying to do um, is to, to find enough to survive in a way that makes sense to them to, to be able to have heat, to pay the rent, to pay their medical bills. I agree. So how does this, um, it, how would shifting the funding in North Omaha potentially help with alleviating poverty there? Tell us about the, you know, your, your interest in raising the question about, uh, about nonprofits and planning for their own, you know, like elimination. Yeah. Um, a lot of people thought because I did the study that my mission was to get rid of nonprofits or to demonize philanthropists and donors and things like that. And it's not the case. It's just, I was looking at, I've been looking at data. So for instance, in 1991, the poverty rate in North Omaha was 33.5%. 2019 is 34%. So nothing has changed in my lifetime. But one thing that has been a for sure thing is most of the money that is dispersed to North Omaha goes to nonprofit entities. There hasn't been any investment, if any, into economic development or business growth and things like that. And there's an imbalance of the of resources. I don't I don't think we should get rid of nonprofits, but I think if for us hypothetically, if if a community is to get a hundred million dollars, all the hundred million dollars shouldn't just go to nonprofits. We should also think we we should also be thinking about how do we grow this grow this area economically? How can we invest in business growth and keep them sustainable? And I've talked to some donors and some philanthropists about it. It's like, and I, and I told them like, this isn't personal. Well, it is personal, but it's not about you. It's about the community. And I know you think you, you're doing a lot of great things, but you also complain about why is there still crime? Why are these things still happening? Well, it's like, because your dollars aren't being utilized effectively. 
in, in my opinion, you should think more outside the box about where do you put your dollars. So <laughs> that's so I think it could happen. I just think it, and it's not ju- and it's not just on philanthropists and donors to solve the issues of what's going on in North Omaha either. It's on me. It's on other elected officials as well. So and it's on the community. We we all have we all have a part in you know fixing what's going on, but. That was, and, and that's what I said. I was like, next year it might be somebody else thinking I'm crazy. It's it, it's it's not about you, so don't don't think about. <laughs> yeah, people get really really touchy. We've noticed at, at seeing red, and um, whenever yeah. you um, question the economic system that we have, that makes necessary a whole series of charities, of nonprofits, of that kind of work that targets need rather than taking our combined resources and providing sufficient support for all, right? Um, that that there is a, a, a different philosophy of dispersing money that one could do that would actually lower the need. Um, you know, we're not questioning the goodwill or the, the, the earnest desire of the people that, you know, are, are choosing to devote their time and, and often their lives to kind of nonprofit and charity work. But um, it's a certain kind of thinking about the way we distribute money in society. Mm-hmm. And there are other models. Like, for example, what if North Omaha did, you know, some uh, community budgeting, right? Like if the community made some decisions about where that money went, they might mm-hmm. choose to say, actually, we love that nonprofit and we want some of the budget to go to that one. They're doing great work, it's very important. Um, but they might choose like better public transit, uh, postal bank, right? Um, you know, like other things that you know, like perhaps aren't in the priorities of the people who are currently dispersing the money, or even aren't in the priorities of mm-hmm. the people who themselves think, you know, are trying earnestly to kind of make a positive intervention, but maybe that doesn't align with what people who live there actually think they need. Mm-hmm. So uh, my partner and his family live in Omaha, and I've been learning a lot about the community there. And I can't get over um, a lot of the nonprofits that operate in North Omaha are ran by people in the community. And I think that that has a tremendous impact on outcomes. And I don't feel like, um, I don't know if you can agree with me or disagree, Senator, but if you don't have community buy-in and the community doesn't get to decide what kind of resources they need and where they're going to be allocated, then um, things don't work how people want them to. And um, anyway, I've just been really surprised by that in um, Omaha and in North Omaha in particular. No, I I would agree with you that a good portion of EDs at local nonprofits are not Omaha natives mm-hmm. or and also don't live in North Omaha. A lot of them live in West Omaha or somewhere not in North Omaha. So there's not that natural connection in some in, in some organizations. They have people from the community, but I think it's it's just a different perspective to be from the community and also kind of just it's just a different perspective it's not to say that people from other places can't care or won't do a great job i just seen that sometimes there's a little bit of 
out of touchness in, in some orgs because of that. And maybe white people not from North Omaha maybe should stay out of what North Omaha needs. Just my opinion as a white person not from North Omaha. <laughs> we might also, you know, well, let me ask is, uh, do you have any kind of, um, what's the follow-up to that for you? You know, like, are, are you thinking of, uh, are, will you study or do some survey of constituents, you know, to get a sense of like what their priorities might be? Do you have thoughts about like changing the ways in which, you know, the, the money is allocated um, to these nonprofits or, you know, ways to, to get more input from your constituents into that process? Um, yeah. Um, so I'm planning to do another town hall soon and kind of get some more feedback from the community. I've been looking at other bill ideas. Um, we also have the ARPA money coming, which hopefully we could take advantage of as well. So I, I would say there's a lot of things that, you know, is being thought about or, you know, brainstormed and thinking about putting on a table once we get back into session in January. Well, I am, you know, I, I know we're running out of time with you. Um, and, you know, I've just so appreciated that you gave us this time. And, you know, I think people are going to find all the things you're saying really interesting and thought-provoking. And for those that are like, yeah, yeah, no, I, I want to be a part of this work. And I want to, um, I want to work towards a criminal justice system that respects the humanity of the real people that are going through it and the reality that, you know, they kind of are leave the community, come back to the community. Um, that economic justice in every neighborhood is really important. Um, and specifically maybe the most disenfranchised neighborhood in the state of Nebraska, right? Historically. Um, what can people do to support your work? whether they are a constituent of yours or whether they are not a constituent of yours. What do you think? Well, I would say number one is just, you know, always be unapologetic about using your voice on, you know, these type of issues. Cause I know for a long time, some of these issues or some of these conversations have, have been a little taboo, but don't be afraid to, you know, speak your mind. I would say also once we get back in session in January, Try to come down for hearings and testify on bills. If you can't testify, make sure you send in emails to committee members or written letters. Anything, everything helps, but definitely share, post on social media, um, make phone calls to other senators as well. But I think one thing that, you know, probably needs to be done better. For instance, before we got on, we were talking about the, uh, the gun bills and how they fill up the, the hearing rooms. We need to do the same. And I know it's tough because it's just not as easy, especially when you're dealing with individuals that live in poverty, work in multiple jobs and things like that to get them to come down to Lincoln, but as best as possible. I think we have to find a way to 
organize on a mass level, like they organize around guns and abortion and things like that. Yeah, I think that is, yeah, no, I do not disagree. Um, and then are you reading anything that you uh, are really into that you think other people might enjoy reading? Um, so I've been listening to, to a few out of here books lately. One is uh, Carmelo Anthony, the basketball player. He has a new book out. It's called Where Tomorrows Aren't Promised. And it kind of it, it gives a story about his life and how he, you know, grew up in New York, moved to Baltimore and, you know, lived with his mom and how he ended up getting to the NBA, but kind of giving the backstory and not the story of prosperity necessarily, but the story of how he, you know, navigated, you know, the landmine of living in poverty and living in not so great areas. But I've, I've thought it was a, a great book to listen to. Also, out about I, every Nebraskan should be required to read the autobiography of Malcolm X as well. But <laughs> Yeah, those two are two I probably would highlight right now. Excellent. Excellent. Um, well, we're just so thrilled that you came and, you know, you've been doing, it's your first year in the legislature this year, right? Yes. Um, and you did all the things we've discussed this year. The year's not mm -hmm. even over yet. It's only mm -hmm. October. So... You know, and it's possible you get seven more years, perhaps. You know, we'll see. But you really hit the ground running, and it's just impressive. It's it's just impressive that you're tackling some of the most important issues of the day nationwide and certainly mm -hmm. in Nebraska. And so we're just very, very proud of you at Seeing Red. We are thrilled with all your work, and we're so grateful that you carved out some time to talk to us today. You're here. Thank you. Thank no you. Problem. Thank you. And I, I see the work you guys do as well. So keep it up as well. I think individuals like yourselves are what keeps a lot of senators motivated down here to know that, you know, community is still organizing and, you know, making sure community voices are heard. So keep up the good work as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. No problem. You've been listening to Seeing Red Nebraska Politics from the Left. Seeing Red is a group blog edited by citizen volunteers and entirely devoted to Nebraska politics. You can support us on Patreon with a $5, $10, or $20 a month donation. Be sure to check us out at seeingrednebraska.com and on Facebook and Instagram. You can also follow us on Twitter at seeingredne or contact us via email at seeingredne at protonmail.com.